0: So, I would put thinking about prepositions as being, you know, kind of at the, the nerdy end, <laughs> the specialist end of, of thinking about how to craft a strong <laughs> sentence. <laughs> but, uh, I think you me. just called me a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Life Story Coach podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler.
1: Hi guys, welcome back. If you're new to the show, this is where we talk about growing our life story business. Clients come to us because they want to record the stories of their life, their memories and reflections. They want to have that to share with their kids and their grandkids and with future generations. And they need our help writing that life story book or creating that video or audio. Well, you might have noticed that there was no episode last week, and that was because I took a little time off to spend with my girls. I have three kids, and when I started my life story business, the Story Scribe, back in 2010, I had two kids in grade school and one just going into high school. And oh my gosh, time flies. Um, so now, as of this fall, I have one daughter who is a fresh college graduate working in Chicago. And I have two kids in college, so my middle one is a sophomore and my youngest just went off for her freshman year. And this is the first time, you guys, in almost 23 years that I have not had the day-to-day responsibilities of being a mom. it's very strange. It's been a weird transition. But when two of the three kids decided to come home for the long weekend last weekend, um, it was Labor Day weekend, I I did not want to be in front of my computer. Um, and we had a great time. So that was the reason for my absence. Um, and I know I'm a little late getting this one out. I've had some technical difficulties. Um, the Audio is pretty darn clear on the interview that you're going to hear today, but it did get a little um, wonky at the end, so I had to cut off a bit of the end, Um, but we have a really good interview for you uh, with Helen Sword. She is a woman that I discovered when I read her book called The Writer's Diet, and I knew that it was some very practical advice that all of us life story writers in particular could put into action very simply. Now a quick heads up, she graciously offered a signed copy of her book. And so I'm going to run a little contest. If you want to be in the running for winning this book, go over to the life and look for episode 32. That's this episode. And in the show notes, you'll see a link right at the very top on how you can register to win that book. And just a quick introduction, Helen Sword is a scholar, a teacher, and a poet, and she's been published widely on modernist literature, higher education pedagogy, digital poetics, and the topic of today's conversation, writing. She received her PhD in comparative literature from Princeton University, and I have to tell you all, that was something that I didn't know until after I interviewed her. That gobsmacked me. Um, Comparative literature was something that I wanted to do. Earlier on, um, when I was right out of college, it was one of the things that I thought about doing. And the fact that she got her degree in that, a PhD nonetheless from Princeton, that's just very impressive. And she's such a smart cookie and so down to earth. So she's also a professor and the director of the Center for Learning and Research in Higher Education at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. But she also travels around doing all kinds of workshops for students and faculty on writing. Um, and she does these all over the world And she happens to be in Boulder now, which is where I talked to her when we had our interview. So without further ado, here's my interview with Helen Sword. Welcome to the Life Story Coach podcast, Helen. I'm so happy to have you on.
0: Well, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh,
1: yeah. I'm I'm really excited about this. I love reading, writing guides, and you have such an interesting take on what you've done. But first, can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about your background and why you've decided to make a specialty out of helping people improve their writing?
0: Sure. Well, I started out as a literary scholar. I have a PhD in comparative literature, taught in an English department for a long time and still do a little bit. Um, but at some point, I moved into working in faculty development, which is more working with academics to try to improve their teaching. And that meant that I started reading um, research also in, in higher education, as well as in literary studies. And I think that made me really aware of the different kinds of writing styles that people use in these different academic disciplines, and it made me really start thinking about why why people didn't communicate more clearly, I guess. Um, At the same time, I was also, as always, teaching students, um, reading colleagues' work, doing my own writing. And so my first book on on writing, um, The Writer's Diet, really kind of came out of that work. I was just trying to figure out how to help people write better sentences was what it came down to. And one of the things that I observed was that as people spent longer in school, particularly like advanced undergraduates and people just starting grad school, their writing often got worse rather than better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, their sentences got longer and longer, and the words got more and more sort of jargony. And often they're praised for doing that because that is, kind of the secret handshake into the discipline in some instances. And so I was just trying to show that you can say the same things often in about 60% of the words. Um, I'm not the first person who has done this, but with The Writer's Diet, I developed a particular algorithm to help people see if, as I put it, their writing is flabby or fit. Um or you could just say kind of soggy or (laughs) sharp, (laughs) you know, different ways of different metaphors you could use on that. And then really give some quite clear principles, not rules, but principles for writing clearer, sharper, more energetic sentences. And then that work led me to looking more broadly at um, academic writing research writing and all the different disciplines and genres that people write in. So that led to my book, Stylish Academic Writing, where I was just trying to distill the principles used by the best writers to try to kind of jolly along those who had fallen into the Into this trap of the long-winded boggy prose, show them how to get out of that by telling stories, by having introductions that make people actually want to keep reading, (laughs) by writing stronger sentences, all that sort of thing. And then working on that book meant that I started running lots of writing workshops for for academics, so both for faculty but also um, often graduate students. And then I started hearing about all the human problems involved in writing, you know, the lack of time, lack of confidence, power struggles. Like when you're trying to write a really interesting first-person narrative and your thesis advisor says, no, that's not what we do in this mm-hmm. discipline, even though sometimes it is what other people do in the discipline, but um the gatekeepers can be really conservative. So that led to my most recent book, which is called Air and Light and Time and Space, How Successful Academics Write. Now, both of those last two books have the word academic in them, but I really wanna emphasize that they're not just for academic writers. I think the kinds of people who listen to your podcast, who are writing histories, family histories, that sort of thing, Pretty much all of the same principles apply. People who have moved into historical writing are somewhat less likely to have fallen into these particular traps, but they still can. And And I think some of the, a lot of the ideas and the information and the research in these books um, could be really helpful to them as well. So the most recent book is much more about writing habits. How people learn to write in these different genres, how they make time for writing, and how they feel about their writing. There's a whole section on the emotions involved in academic writing. So, um, for that book, I established a kind of rubric. Again, like The Writer's Diet, you can find it online, and I can tell you more about that if you like. But again, I think this is applicable not just for writers, but for people (laughs) doing just about anything, whether it's learning a sport or becoming better at art or music. But I found that it's not just about behavioral habits. You know, you can read these advice things that tell you you should wake up every morning at five o'clock and write for two hours every day, and that will make you the perfect prolific writer. Well, if you really hate doing it and you feel incompetent at it, um, you probably won't keep doing that for very long because there are lots of other things that go into a productive writing practice. So, I talk in that book about what I call the writing base, which looks at the behavioral aspects of writing, but also the artisanal aspects. So, that's the craftsmanship because I I see writing as an artisan-like activity, but then also the social aspects um, so that's getting feedback from others, being part of a community of writers, not just trying to do it all in solitude. And then the fourth aspect of this writing base is the emotional side of writing. And, um, that's what my, what my next book is going to be on. It's called Writing with Pleasure, because what I found yeah. was that the most successful writers come to their writing with some kind of deep well of desire and passion and pleasure that gets them through all the frustrations gets them through the fact that writing can be hard and slow and yet there's very little written about this a lot of the productivity literature is much more you know crack the whip just write mm-hmm. <laughs> this kind right of
1: thing. if you're if you're not
0: suffering that not a real writer <laughs> yeah or or you know you if you think that you need to have a nice room with a beautiful view, um mm-hmm. you know you're just looking for excuses, and you know, when it comes down to it, if you give me a choice between writing in an unheated basement while I'm feeling really stressed and agonized and writing in a nice light filled space when I'm feeling good about myself and good about my writing, I would. Take the latter and I would recommend it to anybody else. So the book is trying to help writers find that air and light and time and space metaphorically, as well as, mm. um, you know, in, in the actual world. So right. lots and lots of different aspects of writing. Um, each one seems to lead on to another, but I'll say one more thing and then I'll let you (laughs) pop back in. But that's that my topic I'm working on now writing with pleasure, I think actually feeds right back into all three of those books. I think the craft of writing a really great kick-ass sentence is a deeply pleasurable activity or should be. I think that learning to write stylishly, um, means learning to communicate with your audience in the most effective way. And there's a real pleasure that comes from doing that and from having people respond and really get what you're trying to do. And then, of course, the pleasure is an important part of all the um, kind of behavioral and habit aspects of writing as well. Right. Well, and I,
1: I think probably for a lot of people who do life story books, um, you know, there's, you were talking about the artisanal side of things, and that's pretty much what I want to focus on, mostly because we don't have the option of writing or not writing. If you're if you're not writing, then you're not making a living doing this. So you know yeah. you you have to have a butt in the chair and you have to get the job done, um, whether it's pleasurable or not. That you know that at least for me, it depends on the day. It depends on what section of a book I'm working on. And I would absolutely love to have a little bit more insight into what can make that happen. You know, on a more consistent basis where it is a pleasurable exercise. But what What I I really wanted to talk about was because so many people come into this, uh, people are drawn into this industry for various reasons. But something that I hear all the time from listeners is that they want to come into this industry because they want to listen to people's stories. They want to help them get their stories recorded and help them share them with their families. And so they're not necessarily, some people are writers and some people are not. Um, but they're not necessarily focused entirely on, um, you know, building super strong writing skills. Um, And I think, or the flip side is that maybe they're uh, feeling a little bit weak with their writing skills, but they still know that they want to do this and they still know that they, they can help people. So, I think that's why I was so drawn to your first book, The Writer's Diet. Um, it's called The Writer's Diet, A Guide to Fit Prose. And besides all of the good information that you give, I absolutely love your writing style. I mean, it's just very kicky and it can be funny. And you use, you know, you talk about helping academics, but you have examples from Shakespeare and, you know, classic literature, all kinds of great examples. But the, the promise that you make to your readers in that book, and here I'm, I'm going to read it's, you say, This book will help you energize your writing, boost your verbal fitness and strip unnecessary padding from your prose. And then you go on and you give very concrete ways of helping writers do that. So that's what I would like to address um, in greater detail. I know it's not your latest book. I know it's your first one, but I think it's something that can really help life story writers out there. Just with the zombie nouns and prepositional podge, there's some very specific ways that you steer people towards improving their writing. So can you give us just a a brief overview of the main topics? And then I'd like to talk a little bit in more detail about each of them.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it all comes back to the same stuff. You know, I I wander far away from style as I talk to writers. And yet, in the end, it's all about sentences. (laughs) Um, And I I like to think of, of sentences as being the bricks and mortar of building your your house of writing building whatever it is that you're producing you just are not going to do it if you go out in the backyard and take a few handfuls of mud and sit them in the sun to dry for a mm-hmm. bit and then start building your house you know it's all going to collapse um, sentences are like bricks that need to be shaped and set and fired and Really worked. That's how you're going to get that strength. That's a different metaphor from the diet and fitness metaphor, but I think I think they're both quite powerful. The diet and fitness metaphor. Um, what I really had in mind, there was not so much diet as in not eating. I had in mind diet as in eating well. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so th- the metaphor that I use there is that we all know that in order to be Fit, physically fit. You've got to do two things. You've got to eat good food and you've got to exercise. And I think sentences are exactly the same. You've got to fill them with good words and then you've got to put them through their paces. And that often means working them again and again and again. For me, a sentence is never, ever finished. And I think some writers might find that kind of disconcerting, you know, that, um, even a quite skilled writer will still be tinkering up up till the last minute. But for me, um, it's helpful to link that craft back to the pleasure again. If you are wrestling with any medium, whether it's clay or wood, you know, anybody, any craftsperson is has got to love the medium and not allow themselves to be frustrated by the medium. So, you know, when you talk about getting through those hard days and those days where you just don't want to be doing it, um, one of the things I always try to to do is to just remind myself why I'm there in the first place, which is a real love for the medium of language and for the communication that it can do of these ideas or in the cases that you're talking about these these stories. Um, But every single sentence is a story in microcosm. And so that gets us down to the nitty gritty of how sentences work. Um, In the Writer's Diet, I have five main chapters. One looks at nouns, one looks at verbs, one looks at adjectives and adverbs, one looks at prepositions. And then the last one's a kind of grab bag of categories um, that I call the waste words, but it's four words that don't necessarily have anything grammatically in common, but they often tend to end up in sentences together. And when you see a lot of them congregating together, the sentences may end up being a bit long and unwieldy. So, those are the words it, this, that, and there. And I talk about Mm -hmm. each of those in turn in the book. Um, But really, if I had to boil, boil it down to just two things, it would be nouns and verbs. And if I had to boil it down to just one principle, it would be the principle of concreteness, of concrete mm-hmm. language. Nouns can be concrete or abstract. Verbs can be concrete or abstract. Even adjectives can and prepositions, for that matter, can be concrete or abstract. So understanding the distinction is just absolutely key to understanding how a sentence works. So what I call zombie nouns um, and there's a, I don't know if you've seen the YouTube video on the Ted Ed site, but um there's a, a hilarious video that was made from an article that I wrote um, about zombie nouns oh, no. in the New York oh, Times. How fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just go to YouTube and Google um, zombie nouns, and it will pop up. <laughs> and that kind of animates, um, shows shows you what they are and how they work. But zombie nouns are just the phrase that I use to describe nominal, nominalizations, which such an unwieldy word that I have trouble even saying it's zombie now. Okay, so so I'm gonna,
1: I'm gonna jump in there for a second. Nominalization. Did you come up with that word? Because it's, it's brilliantly funny. I mean, because it is, it, it, it is what you are telling people it not is, to do.
0: <laughs> it is a nominalization, but no, I didn't come up with it. It's a, it's a grammatical term. You can find it in the dictionary. Um, I think it was some of the best writing about nominalizations is in Joseph Williams really fabulous classic book on style lessons in clarity and grace. And any of your listeners who don't already know that book should race out and buy it. Um, it's been around for decades, but it's, uh, it's really a great book on how sentences work. So in some ways I'm not saying anything that, that he doesn't say or that William Zinsser doesn't say in, in his book on writing well, um, but it seems to be a lesson that needs to be repeated over and over again, partly because so many people have not ever been taught to recognize mm-hmm. nominalizations or to understand what they're doing. So. Well, and, and, and the f- fact is, I mean, you're, you're
1: citing some really good, prestigious, um, writing books. But the fact is that I'm, I have it in front of me, The Writer's Diet. And I've read William Zinser. I haven't read the first guy that you were talking about, although I have a note to do so. Because you mentioned him in your book, but you've done it in 73 pages and you've done it very, very clearly in. You know, you are talking about using concrete nouns and and um, staying away from abstractions. you You give app you give exercises, you give ways of testing, like taking something that a writer has already written and seeing where the tweaks need to happen. And I think that's something that's so important for people who maybe are new to the craft of writing and they haven't read tons and tons of craft books, um, this is such a good primer to to get started with. So I, I interrupted you there, but I, if you could tell people what a nominalization is, and it, in my mind, I'm going to let you describe what it is, but in my mind, sometimes we just like academics, try to write smart. And I think that's when things like nominalizations creep in. And it's, you know, masking maybe some inexperience. And if you want to get into the psychology of it, I think it's probably the fear of coming across as not being a good writer. So we try to spruce things up. And that's where we go wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes uh, we, we get a lot of that same kind of language in bureaucratic prose in all mm. kinds of different places. And sometimes it's just easier. <laughs> it's easier to come up with a nominalization followed by a weak verb, followed by something mm. like is or shows or, you know, sort of what I call the usual suspect, um, rather than to find a a verb that really has a lot of energy and uniqueness to it, which really is the key even more than nouns. But what a nominalization is, um, it's a, an abstract noun. By definition, all nominalizations are abstract. It's an abstract noun that has been created from other parts of speech. So usually either a verb or an adjective. Occasionally another noun even. So, um, nominalization itself, it comes from, <laughs> well, the, in French, nom is, is a name, but it's also a noun, right? So nominal, one meaning of nominal is having to do with nouns. So that's already an adjective, a descriptive word that's been formed from a noun. So the noun for noun becomes the adjective having to do with nouns, nominal, and then you can turn that into a verb to nominalize. So, if you take a noun and you turn it into a verb, you have nominalized it. (laughs) And then a nominalization takes the final step of turning it into a noun by adding one of these endings, like in this case, T-I-O-N. So, a nominalization is a noun that has been created from other parts of speech. And nominalization as a process is a way of describing the process of creating nouns from other parts of speech. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a, it's, it's a big word that's describing a, a complex process. But the beauty of it, as you said, is that it's a word that enacts what it describes, right? Um, <laughs> a, nom- a nominalization is a nominalization that has undergone Nominalization, right? So what's wrong with nominalizations? Well, nothing at all. We use them all the time. We need them. We need abstract language in order to communicate about ideas. So the word education is a nominalization. Does that mean we shouldn't use it? Of course not. It's very useful to be able to talk about education. But a writer who is using the word education in every sentence, sometimes more than once, might want to think about the verb that it came from, educate, which has Mm -hmm. a kind of energy to it that education doesn't have. Um, Education or any abstract noun is something that we can conceptualize. We can talk about it, write about it, but we cannot visualize it. We cannot touch it. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem, really, with um, abstract nouns in general, but nominalizations just seem to be a version of them that we're especially drawn towards in English for whatever reason and that are easily minimized by, if you become aware that you're using a lot of nominalizations, you can just look at them and say, okay, what if I take half of these and release the, the word that's hiding inside there. So, what if half the times I say education, I try to talk about educating and educate, and maybe that will actually get me thinking about words like teaching and learning so that I have a bit more variety in in my vocabulary. You know, so it's just a way of doing that. But the the greater issue of abstract versus concrete nouns is just so important to think about because I've read academic articles where people use six, seven, eight, nine abstract nouns in a sentence, sometimes just in the title, mm. you know, a reflection on the the normalization of the this, of the that, you know, and it's just this big string of these things. And I give <laughs> lots of examples in the book of real world <laughs> writing that does these things and not just from the academic sphere so um the the problem with that kind of writing is that the reader can't visualize anything, and so they just get lost mm-hmm. so in the zombie nouns video, um I take a sentence that has a bunch of nominalizations in it and I cut it down to just one, so it becomes an active sentence in which the one abstract term is really. Foregrounded, and you can see what it means, and you can see why it's being used instead of being in there with with all these others. So I just think it's such. I mean, it, it seems like this kind of dry grammatical concept. Why should I have to learn this? But it's like learning how to hit your nail with your hammer. You know, if you haven't learned some of these really basic right. things about how a sentence works, you're going to be building them in much more hit and miss way. So my my kind of rule of thumb is mm-hmm. to make sure even when I'm doing, or I would say, especially when I'm writing about quite abstract things, to make sure that in every paragraph, if not in every single sentence, I've got some concrete nouns. And concrete nouns are things that exist in the world that you can visualize, that you can perceive with the senses. Um, So, you know, in family writing, historical writing, you've got an advantage that you're writing about real people in the world. And yet, it can be really easy to start talking about them in more abstract ways by letting these zombie nouns
1: creep in there. Exactly. And that's always a danger with zombie nouns and with other ways of having the the pros go a little bit lifeless, because generally we're going out, we're interviewing the storyteller. And then we are reshaping the storyteller's words to put down onto the page or, you know, maybe doing some editing for videos or, or probably less so with audio. But definitely for the written format, we're taking a transcript. And those words have a way of getting stuck in your head. And sometimes you, it's hard to see beyond mm-hmm. the way that they have expressed something. And you and I both know the way we express things in speech is not how we want to be reading things on the paper. And, and so the, the challenge is probably a little bit different from an academic. Trying to write in a lively manner, but it's still a challenge because, because we're trying to reshape what somebody else has said. And so if, especially if you haven't really studied the craft of writing so much to be able to hear something like nominalizations, you're, you're going to be much more aware of what you're seeing on the paper. And especially for nominalizations, because they have a few different word endings right i mean the words that end in ment and um yeah, so m-e-n-t and uh t-i-o-n or i-o-n right so so those are visual clues that we can see on the paper and that we can that can you know alert us like hey maybe we need to tighten yeah, things up yeah and there here is the or, website or too. have you tried better. the
0: website the writer's diet i have and that's something that
1: yes i so let's 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 talk about one or two of the other things. And then I definitely want to talk about the website because it's such a good tool for us. Um, <laughs> so listeners are just going to have to wait and wait until the end. And then we're going to talk about it, but okay. So I I'm jumping around in the book a little bit, but, um, One thing, we all, you know, we have definitely heard to use um, strong verbs and uh, concrete nouns. But something that you brought up that I had never really heard before is that there's different qualities Mm. to different prepositions. and you you also give a few rules and i'm sure that these rules are meant to be broken if the need arises but so i'm i'm reading from your book again avoid using more than 3 prepositional phrases in a row that's something that as readers we can all understand um we can all intuit when somebody's piling on prepositional phrase after prepositional phrase, and we'll probably lose interest. But it might not necessarily be something that we consciously understand and can apply to our own writing. So I, I so appreciate that you just putting a, a, putting a number on it. And then the other thing that you say is, do not allow a noun and its accompanying verb to become separated by more than about 12 <laughs> words. I mean, that's brilliant. You're telling us 12, you know? I, that's, it's not, it's not the kind of advice that I've seen before. And it's just, it's so exciting to be able to have something that you can just, in a very practical way, apply to your own writing. So, and, but the thing that I started talking about was you, you, you mentioned that some prepositions are just a little zippier
0: than others. Can you talk about that? So I have some examples in the book of people who use a lot of, Prepositions in a sentence because they're physically taking us someplace. So if you're describing somebody who walks through the garden, into the shed, behind the lawnmower, into the pool of darkness, you know, you're you're breaking the the three preposition. I don't call it a rule, but a rule of thumb. It's kind of like good one to stick to unless you have mm-hmm. a really Good, clearly defined stylistic reason for doing otherwise. But if you're somebody who's trying to kind of pull out the suspense of that movement through the space, back, behind, around, then you're using those prepositions really, really well and really effectively. But often we're using them just to hook a bunch of, in many cases, abstract nouns together a demonstration of the efficacy of the practice of, you know, these sorts of things where it's, it's. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that rolls right off your tongue. (laughs) Um, I actually think it's easier to write this kind of soggy, boggy prose than it is to write tight, zippy prose. Some people are fortunate and they just seem to have been born with that gene or they've been trained into it. But I find, um, I once wrote a, a paper in which I was kind of parodying prose that broke all of these rules and I found it dead easy. It was way, way easier than trying to find the concrete language <laughs> and what I call the fresh, unusual verbs. So prepositions, um, there's, I, I would say for most writers, prepositions are not a big issue and yet what I do with all, in all five categories is I do put numbers on things. And I basically say, if you're going over this percentage of prepositions in your prose, you might want to think about that. You probably want to make sure you have a good reason for doing that. And if you do, you know, if you're able to articulate, well, I'm using all those prepositions because I'm walking us through a landscape, getting us to a particular place and the prepositions help me draw out the suspense, then great ignore the principles. But if you're just piling them hmm. on because somehow you haven't figured out how to get to the end of your sentence, um, that's one where you need to go back or it would be a good idea to go back and, and have a look and think about the work that each of those prepositions is doing. And as with, I think, any part of speech, variety is part of it as well. So you can, you can start to see if you're using the same five or six prepositions over and over again. If you are, then that writing will be much more monotonous Mm. than if you're, if you're using quite varied ones that really are taking us spatially or, you know, prepositions are connecting words. And if you're using prepositions consciously and imaginatively, then there's going to be some variety and some interest in the way that you're doing it. So I would put, I would put Thinking about prepositions as being, you know, kind of at the the nerdy end, <laughs> the specialist end of of thinking about how to craft a strong <laughs> sentence. <laughs> but I think you just called me a nerd <laughs> because this well, is I the stuff
1: I love. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because this has become a favorite book. This, this the Writer's Diet, your book. Because of the content and because of your writing style, another one that I have sitting on my desk right now is Sister Bernadette's Barking Dog, which is all about, um, uh, diagramming yeah, sentences, see. something I love. But it's, it's also, you know, it's, it's using grammar to serve, um, to serve a bigger purpose, which is writing sentences that convey meaning in yeah. a, in a pleasurable way to read. Okay, so we're getting a little bit close to the end. So I do, I I wanted to go through more of your your rules of thumb, (laughs) but I think people are just going to have to go out and buy the book themselves. Because I do want to give you the chance to talk about the website and the the writer's diet test.
0: From the very beginning, when I started working on the writer's diet, I thought, well, if I'm using this kind of going to the gym analogy, and let's say you're going to the gym because you want to start a personal training routine to get stronger and fitter. Your personal trainer is going to, you know, get out the calipers to measure the fat on your arm, and they're going to make you do, you know, the treadmill test. They're going to put you through your paces, and they're going to say, here are some things where you really could could improve or where we'd like to see the numbers change and that will indicate your fitness. So, so I just thought, hmm, I wonder if it's, is it possible to do that with some of these grammatical and syntactical principles in a way that's not saying you must do this? And I think this is really important. The writer's diet test, you, you copy in between a hundred and a thousand words. Um, you click this button. This is at writersdiet.com. You click the run the test button, and then you get this diagnosis of whether your sample, I won't say your writing, and it's certainly not you. It's just the sample that you've put in, whether it is, as I say, flabby or fit. Mm. Now, I'm working on a version of this right now that is actually going to be a plugin that you can run in Microsoft Word on your own machine or in the cloud that will allow you to look at an entire document of whatever length and not just something up to a thousand words. Um, it's turning out to be quite complicated to program, but we will get there eventually. And as part of that, I'm going to have some customization options. So anybody who doesn't like the words flabby and fit can rename it to red and green, you know, or whatever they want to. Um, apples and oranges. <laughs> I don't know. But the, the idea of it, all it's showing you when it puts you over from lean and fit into needs toning or flabby or the most dire <laughs> emergency category is um, heart attack. All it's saying is that You've got a lot of (laughs) words in that category, a high percentage, higher than we would expect somebody writing vigorous prose to have. And you really should go and have a look and think about why. Again, if you're doing it consciously... For repetition or because you need to use a certain word over and over or for a stylistic effect, then you ignore the results and you go on with what you're doing. But for most people, it shows them things that they aren't aware of. So with the nominalizations, for example, um, if you get a, a reading of heart attack, I think it's showing you that six percent or more of the words in your sample are nominalizations. and it's just saying, You know, that's kind of danger zone. You may be losing your readers because if you have that much, that many zombie nouns, you probably have a whole bunch of other abstract nouns that aren't even getting, you know, that the, that the algorithm won't find because it's only looking for certain word endings. And if you have all that abstract language, you probably don't have very much concrete language. So The way it's working is it's an algorithm. All it's doing Mm -hmm. is counting. You put in your words, it spits out a result. And we all love algorithmic thinking because, you know, you push a button and you get an answer. But what it's trying to teach you is what I would call heuristic thinking, which is thinking in terms of principles rather than rules. So that's where you can see the principle is that if you have too many prepositions, your sentences are probably quite long and stringing together a whole lot of nouns and you may be losing your reader. But the heuristic is saying, ah, but if I understand how prepositions work and what the different effects are, then I can make my own choices based on what the algorithm is telling me. It's just giving me a very simple diagnosis. And now I take that diagnosis And I, the human being with a brain, um, you know, look at look at my writing kind of with new eyes and, and think about how to improve it. So, you know, I do get comments every now and then from people, um, usually undergraduates, often undergraduates for whom English is not their first language, saying, this tool doesn't fix my writing. <laughs> it doesn't tell me what's wrong. It tells me all these, <laughs> that I have to get rid of all these words. Well, it's not telling you that at all. It's just saying you've got a lot of words in this particular category. So the nouns category, all it's looking at are nominalizations. So that is nouns with any one of seven word endings. And both the book and the website will tell you what they are. It will tell you how to identify them yourself. And you can even do the whole thing with just the book by counting and color coding. It tells you how to do that in the back. So it's giving you a formula, but it's not meant to be a formula Mm -hmm. that any thinking person is going to, you know, kowtow to and and follow without thinking about it. Quite the opposite.
1: But it's data that can shed a light on problems that you might not be seeing yourself. So like you said, it's not, it's a diagnostic tool and you can do what you want with the results, but it can definitely show us where we are falling down when we don't realize it. And I think that's the beauty of it because it, it can really, um, it can illuminate some things that you didn't understand about your own writing yeah, and habits. Ideally,
0: I follow those principles myself very rigorously, but I can also tell when I'm moving away from them. And it's often when I'm doing a certain kind of academic writing, like Writing an abstract often is quite abstract. And I'll, I can, I can start to feel that I don't have great verbs in there and that I've got an awful lot of these, um, zombie nouns, you know, more than I would like to. And if I start to feel that I can almost always put that segment through the test. And yep, sure enough, (laughs) it will have gone over. Over the line. Now, having said that, it doesn't tell you whether your writing's good or bad. Um, It doesn't even tell you whether it's interesting or boring. It's just looking for characteristics of sentences that tend to be types of words that tend to be associated with a certain kind of boggy, long winded prose. That's all it's doing. Um, But that turns out to be quite a helpful thing to have a mechanism to do. Because what I used to do before I developed it is I would hand back students' papers or sometimes colleagues' draft articles or whatever, and I'd say, go through, circle all of the forms of the word to be. So that's all of those um, is, was, were, you know, all of those um, verb forms. And get rid of half of them. <laughs> you know, which was a pretty a pretty random, you know, a pretty scatter sort of mm-hmm. thing. Whereas now with with this particular algorithm, you can, you know, I basically said generally if I read something where it's up to three percent of these B verbs, forms of B, it's fine. And generally if it gets to more than that, um either the language is quite passive, you're using Passive verb constructions, which always then bring in a be verb. You know, the research was performed. Mistakes were made. Um, So (laughs) if you're doing the passive, then you've often got rid of the agent, (laughs) the person or thing doing the action. Or it may just be that you're writing a lot of kind of lazy sentences. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. You know, it's this kind of monotonous use of one verb over and over again. And it's just so common um, in all levels of writing that that seemed an interesting, important thing to flag. Now, what it won't tell you is how to replace or how to rewrite those sentences using more energetic verbs. The book will help with that because it gives you some exercises and lots and lots of examples, but it will not do it for you.
1: Well, your writing in this book is a great example of the things that you're trying to teach us in the book itself. So thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Can you tell us again the name of your latest book and where the listeners can reach you?
0: The latest one published last year is Air, Enlightened, Time and Space, How Successful Academics Write. And if you go to the Writer's Diet website, so writersdiet.com, down at the bottom, you can... Um, subscribe to my newsletter. Now, having said that, I write to the newsletter about once a year, so it's not a very active one, but I do use it to inform people of new developments. Also at the bottom of the writer's diet page, you will see a link to the writing base, which is where you can go and um, do a little... Self-diagnostic test looking at your behavioral, artisanal, social and emotional habits and how they all intersect. And you'll also find links from the writer's diet site to mm. my kind of main website, which is helensword.com. And there you can find links to all of, all of my books on writing as well as various, <laughs> various other things and things like the zombie nouns video, which, um, is pretty much my favorite thing ever. <laughs> Being able to take a piece of writing and then having somebody animate it and add sound effects. It's just awesome. <laughs> I can't much wait fun. to see it. Um, and I think, I think practice is what it preaches because it's taking this quite abstract, you know, what is a nominalization? What's wrong with nominalizations? And it's It's actually putting a story on it. The story about these zombie nouns that go and cannibalize other parts of speech and wreak havoc in our sentences. So... And
1: that does it for our interview with Helen Sword. Now, the end of the interview got a little bit chopped off um, because of technical reasons. So one thing that I wanted to let you know that she said is that she, in the next few months, will be looking for beta users to try out an extended version of the Writer's Diet test. And you can find information about that coming up on her website writersdiet.com and for any of the links that we talked about today head over to the show notes on the com. look for episode 32 and remember to register for the contest if you're interested in receiving a signed copy of her writers diet book i'll be announcing the winner mm, i'm thinking probably within the next several weeks so just be sure to register for that before October 1st, and that's 2018. I hope you enjoyed today's interview, and I hope there's things that you took from it that you can apply to your own writing. I really encourage you to visit her website and look at that um, writer's diet test or pick up a copy of the book, which is actually what I did, and run some of your own samples of your life story works uh, through her test and see if maybe there are places that you can improve your own writing. So where you might have fallen into some of these pitfalls that she's talked about, and um, you can improve it, tighten things up. It's so much fun to look at our writing uh, in an analytical way, because it's like she said, it's easy. We actually get an answer when you're when you're plugging in an algorithm, but that's just a tool to help us improve and to find out where we need those improvements. So it's fun, it's a different way of looking at editing, and it will definitely help your writing in the end. Thanks for listening, and until next week, go out and save someone's story.